You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 11, episode five. And just a heads up, this episode contains a few expletives. Trata con mi vida que ya no puedo Escondida se estorba entre mi pecho Bree Stoner is a bilingual indie rock musician and songwriter, creative thinker, and podcaster. She co-hosted Richard Rohr's Another Name for Everything podcast before launching her own podcast titled Unknowing, which explores the unexpected path of creative possibility with guest artists, authors, and activists. Bree studied theology at the Chicago Theological Seminary and served as program designer at the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In this episode, Bree brings a thoughtful perspective on art and the urge for transcendence. She talks with me about embodiment, being grounded, and the somatic connections of our deeper spiritual yearnings. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Bree's music and ways to stay connected with her work. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is my interview with songwriter Bree Stoner. Bree, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to have a fellow songwriter, creative thinker, and a fellow podcaster as well, who seems to be wrestling through some of the spiritual creative angst that I think we can all feel as artists. And, you know, I first came across your work on Kimbra's podcast, Playing With Fire, and I reached out to her and I said, Brie is amazing. I think she would be perfect for the Makers and Mystics conversation this season. And she was like, hit her up. She would love to be on the show, I'm sure. So if this goes terribly wrong, you can blame her for the introduction. Okay, it's your fault. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Exactly. Well, this season on the podcast, we are talking about art and the urge for transcendence. And I know on the episode you did with Kimbra, that was a large part of your conversation was transcendence from your perspective. And so I'd love to get you to weigh in on that a bit in our conversation, as well as I want to talk with you about your songwriting and your creative process and whatever else we get into. But to get us going, let's just start there. What what does transcendence mean to you at this point in your life? Mm. <laughs> It's really it's such a loaded... Maybe I should say, at, yeah, at this point in your day, maybe yeah. is a better question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a loaded question, right? Because the term transcendence evokes a lot of what we've learned from spiritual frameworks through religion, through philosophy. It connotes the idea that we are imprisoned in a certain mindset and worldview, that we're limited. You know, Plato's allegory of the cave comes to mind, right? That we're like these human beings that are chained up in this cave and like we're looking at shadows playing out on the wall and we think that this is the entirety of our life and our and our world. 
And so um, this worldview that utilizes this term transcendence tells us that actually we need to break through to be able to understand that if we really want to know what's going on, we need to have these like critical breakthroughs. And while that's not necessarily untrue, and that's not something that I don't feel aligned with, I think I'm looking for some more organic terms and frameworks these days, maybe something more ecological. I would rather think about metabolizing and composting. So if I wanted to use the term transcendence, I think for me, it would be more uh, in relation to creativity. So rather than transcendence as a need to break through in order to know, like some sort of ultimate truth or knowledge, to actually see and have this experience of like consciousness and unit of consciousness <laughs> and non-dual consciousness, I would much rather talk about like, how is love moving through you to metabolize all of you, that which is dying, that which is alive, that which is messy, that which is beautiful, into a creative expression because life moves toward moreness. And so that's where I'm activated. That's where I'm interested in exploring is the direction of that moreness and where it takes us. So if I had to use the word transcendence, I would couch it with <laughs> all of that. And the reason I'm hesitant to, to go there is because I don't necessarily feel that we have been um, that or let me let me say it this way. I don't necessarily feel that we're currently being served by any types of worldviews, um, maps, or parameters that create this separation from reality, in which, like you know, we need to like break through in order to really understand something. That the idea that spirituality or the spirit is separate from matter. So I I'm kind of more in the eco philosophy side of things where I'm like let's just shake this shit up. It's all messy <laughs> and intermingling and interpenetrating and interrelated. So instead of trying to break through into some perfectionism or to some enlightenment, I'd rather talk about what is metabolizing, what is being transformed in us, and what is being expressed in creativity. So beautifully said. I love the thought of how is love moving through you to metabolize and to bring these things together. And I love what you said as well, that life moves toward moreness. Yeah. I'd love for you to elaborate on that a bit. How does life move toward moreness? Well, I mean, you know, we can look at this from like a biological level, but I'm no biologist, so, you know, bear with me. But it's sort <laughs> of like life moves into complexity, into creative expressions, into creative combinations that allow for more life, right? And even in decay, we see that there is a tremendous amount of life that's bursting through, you know, and what is like seen as like this like terrible death moment is actually the enlivening of all of this bacteria and fungus. And so I think I want to frame that for myself toward in, in the language of love, toward the language of moreness, to remind myself that that life is ultimately creative, right? Uh -huh. That that life is ultimately seeking new combinations and unseen possibilities. And that moreness that is on the other side of what we know is terrifying. <laughs> so that's why it's really freaking hard to be a maker, yes. to be an artist or to be a creative or to be human because I actually consider everybody who's alive to be an artist and a maker. Absolutely. Because you're making something out of every choice you make with your life. Mm -hmm. But what's difficult about that is the not knowing, is the unknown 
could be, the things we haven't imagined yet, the things we can't even imagine about our own lives or about our own potential. So it's much easier to stay like back in the familiar and like rein life in and try to stay like in the predictable landscapes that we know versus being called into um, to quote one of my friends and uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Bayo Okomolafe, the wilds beyond our fences. You know, you're talking about the unknown. And what stands out to me about this is I think that the unknown either elicits one reaction or the other. It tends to be a very visceral thing for some people. In other words, you either rush into the unknown with curiosity and excitement that you're on the frontier of a creative discovery, or the unknown terrifies you. And so you back away from it, back into convention, back into familiarity, even if it's a dysfunctional familiarity. Sometimes mm -hmm. we would prefer a dysfunctional familiar over an unknown, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so I think that something that the artist and the mystic might share in common is that when we gaze into the unknown, it elicits that sense of awe or reverence or curiosity that often leads to creative discovery. But I'd be curious to know from you, when you think about the unknown, what is your posture in relationship to it? Mm, yeah. Well, I started a podcast called Unknowing because... <laughs> <laughs> Because I kind of feel like this is this is the whole landscape. This yes. is the whole journey is that we never know. So if we're really honest with ourselves, we are perpetually in unknowing. So the question then becomes not like, how do I get to the other side of unknowing or how can I know? But the question is, how can I be membered in the midst of unknowing? How can I remember myself, reconnect myself to my own body or to my own sense of connection to the world around me to feel myself as belonging so that I can relax enough to be playful in the unknowing? So I think yes. in terms of pleasure, I think in terms of playfulness, I think in terms of presence, and these are all practices for me that help me sort of ease into the discomfort of the terror of not knowing what's next. I mean, and it's real, right? Like those <laughs> yes. of us who are artists are, most of us are living with that sense of like, okay, I don't, I don't know like what's, you know, I don't know what shows I'm going to play next month. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills. I don't know like if I'm going to write another song or paint another painting, but all of us are facing that unknown in different ways. You know, I don't know I don't know how my kids are going to do. I don't know if somebody's going to be struck with an illness. I don't know if my marriage is going to work out. So to some degree, we're all in that. And then the question becomes not whether we're in it or not, but how do we make peace with it or how do we relate to it? Do we try to have control over it and dominate or do we seek to be in relationship to it and create? Yes. And I would think that when I think of the mystics, I think of that posture of openness, that posture of receptivity, which I think is also two of the fundamental qualities of the creative process is coming to a place of receptivity, coming to a place of openness. And I think sometimes it doesn't necessarily take away the terror but it does position us in such a way that we can more easily move through some of the experiences of the unknown, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about love, 
right? And love is unknowing. Like when we love somebody, we are choosing to embrace the mystery of what cannot ever be known about the other person. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, I choose to be in relationship about what is unknown within you. I choose to be in a like continual conversation with you over time. But that also requires risk taking. Mm -hmm. And in order to take risks and be vulnerable with each other, we have to like learn how to stabilize ourselves, how to ground ourselves, how to relax the body enough to be flexible and fluid and dance with that mystery and risk taking. Mm -hmm. When we seize up, when we're like, when we're, when we're in panic, you know, or when we're trying to control, I mean, you know, listeners can't see that I'm doing this, but I'm like clenching my fists, right? My jaw gets really tight. My diaphragm seizes up. And as any singer can tell you, if you're in that state, you're not going to be able to get your breath under you enough to be able to sing. Any dancer will tell you if you're seized up like that, you're not going to be in flow and you're not going to be as graceful. You're not going to actually be able to move with the music. So there does seem to be something about life and creativity and love that requires us to be vulnerable, to be fleshy, to be soft, and to move into that unknown with courage and with that kind of like playful curiosity. Yes, I love it. What are some practices that you have in your own life that help you strengthen that muscle or, or develop that posture toward life? Are there any things that you have practiced or some trial and error, things that help you stay in that place? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, there's like, there's like, there are a lot of practices, right? <laughs> I think for me, and, and maybe this is where like, I'm, I'm centering my own work in the realm of, of the mystical and the making and, you know, um, mysticism and contemplation is I'm really trying to emphasize the body and practices that connect us at a somatic level to what it feels like to actually be in a relaxed, trust-filled state versus just talking about meditation and achieving or arriving at certain states of consciousness, I'm way more interested in the body. I'm way more interested in talking about, well, how does it feel? Where in the body do you feel trust? How does it feel when you feel grounded? You know, what are the things that you experience in the body in your, um, you know, even within your breath, when you are in a state of connection and feel like you're related and connected to the earth itself. So, one of the things that I teach in my classes is to, to build that awareness of the creative circuitry of the body, to begin to tune into these different energy centers and the stories that we have lodged or stuck there. You know, we say things all the time like, oh, you know, my head was into it, but my heart wasn't. Or, you know, I just, I can't feel like, I don't know that I have a gut sense about this. Like, I just don't know what my instincts are. Um, or we'll say things like, I had this knot in my throat, like I, I couldn't even swallow. So we reference the different energy centers in the body all the time. But I'm I'm really excited to like explore how we practice and how we move into those spaces at a somatic level to begin to relax, not just the, the physical body in those tense places, but the stories that are connected to that. So feeling my feet on the ground is, is one of my practices. Um, tuning into sensation is one of my practices. So even now, as I'm talking to you, I'm 
I'm feeling the weight and the dimension of my feet on the ground. And I'm aware that just by doing that, it's bringing like this tingly energy to my feet. I'm noticing how my hands feel on my lap and I'm allowing my attention to go there. So even in just dropping down into sensation, we're already more present. And when we're more present, we can be more playful because we're more relaxed, right? So it's this whole chain reaction that I'm really fascinated by, which is the a lot of the mechanisms that are at play in some of the spiritual practices like meditation. I just, you know, happen to be a woman and a creative and a mother and a lover. So I'm way more interested in like, okay, let's talk about eros and energy and the body and how all of these things work together and make it less precious and more practical so that people can access that presence right away just by feeling the weight of their hands on their lap, just by feeling sensation, just by bringing attention and awareness to like, you know, even just like the breeze on your face or the sound of the birds outside. You know, the body is the only vehicle for presence and transformation and creativity. And none of those things happen apart from the body. But we talk as if it does all the time. Yes, <laughs> you know? I know it. I absolutely. Yeah, and that was that's part of my next question. Is you know I've often said that all art is incarnational. Yeah, and you know there's this sensory part of it, this embodiment, and you know when we talk about things like transcendence we can get the impression of some untethered, wispy, bodiless type of, you know what I'm saying, yeah. you know, thing that, but I think that true transcendence requires a groundedness. You know, there's a relationship between the visible and the invisible. There's a relationship between the spiritual and the material, between the creative. And, uh, you know, I think of people like, uh, whether it's the poet William Blake, mm who was, was very sensory, but at the same time, such a visionary way out there who can understand fully what William Blake was actually mm -hmm. experiencing. But then I also think of Simone Weil, and mm -hmm. uh, Simone Weil is, mm -hmm. is one of my favorite philosophers and mystics, but she taught me about attention as a sacred act or yeah. our attention as being akin to prayer. Mm -hmm. And I, I hear what you're saying very much in, in that stream of thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And embodiment is not a problem and neither is desire. Neither is our longing. It's disembodied desire. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's disembodied emotions that lead us to this kind of violence, right? Because when we're disconnected from our bodies, we become disconnected from embodiment and other bodies. So then we move into that paradigm, that worldview of domination that seeks to control mm -hmm. and have power over what is unknown, what scares us or what's different versus being in a connectedness, a state of relationship. If I'm deeply in my own body and I'm feeling connected and I'm in this grounded, connected um rooted posture, then I feel the relationality of my whole life. So I recognize that I'm not an I, you know, I'm a, I'm a we. And even within my own body, like all these, I think I said this on a, on one of the, another name for everything podcast with, with Richard Rohr, where I was like, you know, the God in my gut, like there's so many, like <laughs> thousands of, of strands of bacteria in my own gut. Like this is, this is a whole community in here. Like, uh -huh. this is a we, it, it is already an us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I'm curious because I've often been meditating on the role of limitation in art making as distinction, you know, limitation, like I'm looking at the Picasso behind you, there are four sides to this that gives it distinction and identity from the rest of your room. And so when you talk about not only being an I, but a we, I resonate with that and understand the communal aspect of that and and the non-dualistic thinking in that. My question would also be when for the artist can distinction be helpful and beneficial. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the way that I talk about it in the classes that I teach is I've I've oriented toward seasonality. So I talk, I teach, you know, um, a class in in the winter called Womb, which is all about mm-hmm. descent and unknowing and sort of letting go of our tools and uh, you know letting go of needing to be productive. And there's a class called Woo in the spring, which is all about activating and making with the muse and seducing the muse and 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 bringing up all of that energy from the earth into our bodies and and learning how to work with that creative circuitry. And in the summer, it's about wield and how do we wield that energy? How do we put the tools to the earth and cultivate and make and manifest our creative projects. Mm -hmm. But wielding energy is a very different thing than trying to force ourselves to be machines, right? So if we're makers, we're, we're seeking to be in relationship with and power with instead of power over. So I guess to your question about distinction and like how that shows up, I often talk about frustration and Frustration is when we experience that rub between something that has been and something that could be, both coming together with this like rubby tension inside of our bodies. And so I feel that that desire that manifests through that frustration is creative. And it is a distinction because it's manifesting something new. It's saying like, okay, I actually don't agree with you, Richard Rohr, on this particular view that you have as a Franciscan priest. I mean, I think you're amazing and you've brought so much to so many of us, but I actually have a slightly different perspective as, you know, a millennial musician and, and mom and maker. This is this is how I would interpret that worldview, right? So whenever we add our voices, we are offering a distinction. Uh-huh. But if we are in relationship with and in that connected place of embodiment, I don't need to be against Richard to add my own voice. Yeah, so, so good. distinction doesn't become a separation. It becomes a harmonization. It's adding that it. seventh, you know, that like really like, ooh, <laughs> like, okay, yeah, no, that feels good. <laughs> so we can harmonize and add to each other and we can view this whole thing as a co-creative act of a symphonic unfolding mm-hmm. as opposed to being like, ugh, I was once an evangelical and now that, you know, like I'm just going to burn the whole thing, which is again, why I'm drawn to this language of composting Mm -hmm. because in composting, we're letting something go, but something is emerging in the midst of letting go of it. So it's more complicated than just a binary of like being against, um, if that makes sense. Totally. And I think what you're saying as well about knowing the seasons and being sensitive to the season goes back to what you said earlier about attentiveness, you know, and I think, I think as we cultivate that attentiveness, both in our spiritual practices, as well as our creative practices, and just in life in general, cultivating that attentiveness 
can help us to be more sensitive, uh, more sensitized to where we are in the moment. And I love what you said about distinction doesn't have to create an either or, but mm -hmm. it can, with a posture of humility, I would say, allow to even greater unity in the midst of the distinctions. Yeah, yeah, and that seasonality and that harmonization that you just named is important because, you know, a lot of the philosophical frames that that we've been trying to build on are very linear and are very binary and are very ascent driven. Mm -hmm. You know, that separation of, of matter and spirit and the idea that we have to climb that seven story mountain, sorry, Merton, to get to the top, you know, <laughs> right. I, I'm just so over that. I'm so over that, yeah. that frame. I'm so over that picture. It's so static and it's so two dimensional. And I would much rather be in a relational connection to a cyclical, I mean, shocking, mm -hmm. right? As a woman that I would say this, to a cyclical <laughs> worldview when we're talking about transformation and creativity. Mm -hmm. It's always cyclical. So transcendence happens every spring or every time you write a song or every time, you know, but then you have to be ready for the descent. You have to be ready for the relaxing and returning into a posture of unknowing, of letting go, of putting the tools down, of not being f like filled with insights and illumination, but actually feeling like, you know, really deeply pressed into the earth and grounded. Yes. I get the picture in my mind of like a stone tossed into the water and you see the ripples going out to, you know, to me, there's a relationship between transcendence and groundedness. Again, I think I made that point earlier, but there's a relationship. And I love what you're saying about the cycles and the cyclical nature of it as well. I think that there's also a relationship between ecstasy and the mundane or these heightened experiences and the mundane. And I think sometimes we think of those as either or situations, but really finding beauty in the midst of the mundane, finding wonder in the midst of the everyday is something that, you know, I think is healthy even for artists because the stereotype would be undulation of highs and lows. And of course, you know, we can all experience that when we're in a state of creative inspiration, emotions and everything are high. And then when we feel depleted, when we come off tour or we've just mm -hmm. completed a project or something, then we're just drained and we're way down here. But I think there's also a posture and a place, at least that I practice and, and seek to discover in my own life where wonder in the mundane harmonize together in that way also. Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, it's helpful to utilize like comparing a comparison between domination and communion, mm. right? Because domination is always going to try to possess and exert power over, which means that when we're talking about these moments of transcendence, we, we put them on this pinnacle and then we're trying to possess them, mm. recreate them, have power over them. So if we're in a posture or in a, in a state of relatedness um, in which we're allowing a paradigm of communion to drive our creativity, I love that. then it's no longer about reaching this zenith, these like artificial arrival points that we've created that mean nothing. 
And, you know, to constantly be trying to get on that linear ascent path, like to, to that one place that you think, once I get signed, or once I do the tour with so-and-so, or once I sell this many <laughs> records, then I'm going to really feel like, okay. And you know it's bullshit, because you're just going right. to feel exactly like you feel now. So I really see that as a symptom of the industry changing what it is to be a maker and trying to turn us into machines, trying to make us all about the product, right? Mm -hmm. But the process is the product. Like we are our art. Yes. So if we're in relationship to ourselves, we're learning how to be in relationship to the wholeness of ourselves, to the moments when it's like, yeah, you know, the song's not coming right now. I'm gonna put this tool down and just go for a walk. Or you know what? I'm gonna choose to see that like making dinner and like having dinner with my kids is somehow mystically connected to the song I'm gonna write tomorrow. Like it's all mm. one thing. Like if I'm making love, I'm praying. If I'm praying, I'm writing a song. If I'm painting, I'm writing a book. Like it's all this web. So then mm -hmm. there aren't any highs or lows in a web. It's just a web. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a zenith point of arrival in a giant like cycle. It's just the continuation of the flow. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of what I'm trying to orient myself to. You mentioned unknowing and you mentioned your podcast. And I have to say, I want to bring that into the conversation because I may or may not have binged the whole thing. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> lot of unknowing. <laughs> uh, totally. I, I'm completely unknowing right now. I've listened to them all. I may or may not be a little jealous that you had Ilya Dilio on the show, oh, yeah. but you know, I've, I've been working through that as well. Okay, so, okay. Okay. <laughs> but you, you know, I'm, I'm curious to, to ask because, you know, we've been talking about frameworks as well mm -hmm. and in kind of, you know, essence and form is the way that I think about that. And You've had a long and winding spiritual journey of your own oh, and yeah. you've you know you've talked about it a lot you grew up in an evangelical missionary home life and you've been on this journey of processing I don't know if you use the term deconstructing I do love what you say composting yeah. I like that much better you know but I'd love to know some of where you are in your own journey now in this wrestling, it sounds like you've come to a place of peace mm. in yourself and understanding. Speak to me some about that part of your journey that led to making the Unknowing Podcast mm -hmm. and where you find yourself present day. Yeah. <laughs> well, Just a small question. Yeah, right, right. Well, I, I started the Unknowing Podcast because my life was a shit show and I didn't know <laughs> what was next. And so I, I, I decided to explore that in a more public way. But, um, you know, I just finished the final season of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, um, which is the CAC's podcast. And that was such a special and incredible season of my life and a, an unforgettable experience to be able to get to sit at the feet of really a, a true mystic. And he would never call himself a spiritual master, so I won't say it, but like somebody who's really done a shit ton of work yeah. and has arrived at love. That's how I would describe him mm -hmm. and everything that he teaches and represents. It's just more love. 
And so at the end of that experience, I, you know, it, it coincided with this um, really cool organization that I was working with in Washington, D.C., and it kind of like went through one of those COVID like disband moments because there was no funding and it, it has since reconvened and become a whole different thing focused more on policy but at the time it was just this like okay shit like now I don't have a job this podcast is done we're going through a global pandemic like what do I do here like I don't you know and as a single mom I've I've been divorced for six seven years now so it, it was a real moment of reckoning within myself to say okay I could just go find a job as another creative blah, blah, blah for another cool contemplative org doing blah, blah, blah. Or I could actually trust that I might be pregnant with something myself, that mm -hmm. I'm ready to express all of the things that I have been slowly digesting and metabolizing with the sound of my own voice through music, through painting, through this podcast. And now I'm currently writing a book as well. So that was really the basis for beginning to explore unknowing because I had this experience and I know you relate to this of as a maker and as a student of the mystics and as a practicing mystical mutt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that both creativity and transformation must go through the gate of unknowing. There's no other way for love or for creativity to be born, we have to let go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. And so that became really the basis of not just the podcast, but a, my own kind of spiritual composting, as you mentioned. Because coming through that like experience of the CAC felt like the zenith of the new, you know, contemplative <laughs> Mecca. It was sort of like, oh my God, you worked with Richard and the CAC and oh my God. And it, you know, and it was just as full of like, confusion and human shit like any other organization right like just all <laughs> right. sort of bureaucratic drama but what happened is that i had that experience of falling through into this moment of reckoning that in a very similar way as i that i was wrestling with like okay do i go just get another job or do i like figure out what i want to do i had that moment spiritually where i realized like okay i could just keep chasing spiritual teachers and spiritual frameworks for the rest of my life or I can trust that everything that has been said about this idea of incarnation could actually be true and that mm -hmm. I can express this myself in my own unique way. And one of the metaphors I've been using um, for that has been talking about, you know, the wardrobe of Narnia, you know, this magical wardrobe that gets you into this magical land. And I feel that religion has been all about these maps to get us up to the wardrobe right? You can take the back stairs or you can take the front stairs and there's a lot of arguing about which way is better. But okay, whatever. Once you get to the wardrobe, what is interesting to me is that we're comfortable just staying there and worshiping the wardrobe. Mm. And every so often somebody will peek out of the wardrobe and be like, hey, y'all, it's... um." There's like a whole thing in here. You might want to check it out. And so then we're like, oh my gosh, that person went in. Like, let's praise them. Like, let's put them on a pedestal. Let's read all of their, like, you know, first text works. And then let's write like commentaries on their works. And then let's write commentaries on the commentaries on their works. Meanwhile, we've never gone into wardrobe ourselves. So mm -hmm. I think my faith these days is all about 
the experience of having walked into that wardrobe and now I'm just learning every day how to trust my own feet in that adventure of unknowing and to trust the whole experience as part of the divine beckoning me into moreness mm -hmm. and trusting that it's good and creative and exciting. What would you say one thing would be as you've gone through and as you continue to go through this composting process and learning new ways of encountering your own spirituality and your own creativity, what is one beautiful thing that you feel like you've carried with you across all incarnations of Bree Stoner, across, you know, all versions of yourself in every season? Is there a constancy that remains with you? Mm. I'm thinking about myself as a little girl, as a missionary kid in Spain, you know, and this like freaking that's not the word that came to mind, fiery, <laughs> you know, energy that always heard the harmony of more, mm -hmm. that always knew that the boxes that I was being handed were too small, mm -hmm. that had this instinct that love was bigger than all of that. You know, I marched into my dad's office when I was five and I was like, why can't women be pastors? And uh, like pre priests, like, wait, why? <laughs> At five. And I, he explained it to me and I'm sure it made sense. But I remember I walked out of there with this like, mm, yeah, no. <laughs> That's amazing. And that has stayed with me. It's this feisty belief, this stubborn belief that love is more. And, uh -huh. you know, when I find myself in situations in life where, you know, I'm scared or... I'm feeling lonely or I'm, you know, feeling sorry for myself or like things are difficult um, or the unknowing feels like unbearable. I just remember, I feel that, that instinct in me, like, again, like that, like a flame that won't go out. That's just like, yeah, but there's more and love mm -hmm. is going to take me there. And I don't know how, but if I can just soften into that a little bit more today, if I can just lean into that, like learn to trust that or learn to kind of like, you know, relax into that a little bit more, I know that that's where I'm headed. So that's one. And then the, the other image that comes to me um, from when I was a little girl was that, I don't know where this came. It's probably because I, I was like, you know, classic Enneagram 4, like super dramatic and like, you know, self-absorbed. <laughs> so I, I used to think that if I was going through something really difficult and painful and I was crying, I would go into my room and I would think that if I just closed the door, and I just started to dance, even as like the tears were coming down my face. It's just like this little stubborn body, you know, just like twirling around in my room, like sobbing hysterically. But I used to think that there was something about that act, that defiant act to make in the midst of heartbreak that would draw all the angels and that they would all like descend that they had to stop whatever they were doing because they were just so mesmer mesmerized by this little tiny human girl. And they would sit around and just like watch me and delight in me. Uh -huh. And, you know, I don't really know that I believe all that in the same way. But what has stayed is that instinct that in the midst of our greatest heartbreak, there's always a gift. And the gift is creativity. There's always something that can be expressed through the greatest challenges of our lives that is awe-inspiring, that does draw the angels, that does make everybody like 
grow so quiet that you could hear a pin drop. And I feel like that's one of the greatest gifts um, that we have as human beings is to, is to be makers. Well, Brie, may you always dance through the heartbreak until you reach the love that is always more. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'll be sure to put links to your podcast, to your music, and so that our audience can connect with what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, and I really appreciate the connection you're making between makers and and mysticism. It's really special, so thank you. And thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Bree's work and to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. I